0: Morning and hope you did as well. As we were uh, leaving the house, I had two of my middle children with me, Zachary and Aria, and uh, and the truck had not yet warmed up. So we're pulling out of our neighborhood, and Zige is shivering in the passenger seat, and he says, "Is this how cold it's going to be every morning around here?" I said, "Zige, do you not remember what Kansas was like <laughs> this time of year? How cold it was." Uh, my in-laws, Becky's parents, her dad is a pastor at a Wesleyan church and they've actually already canceled church once this season because of snow and ice. So what a pleasure to be able to gather this morning in Arizona where we have not such hindrances that would prevent us from being able to come together to worship the Lord. So we continue in our series. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And verses 8 through 15 is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. In honor of the word of the king, would you please stand? This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writing to his servant Timothy in Ephesus. Hear the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also... Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, I pray that we see and understand the roles that you have created men and women to have. This culture has so wanted to confuse what is clearly identifiable in the differences between men and women. And you have not only created us physically different, but you created us for different tasks, for different purposes. And may we desire to want to fill those purposes and desire to do so with joy. A man is not oppressed for being a man. A woman is not oppressed for being a woman. In fact, it is with joy that we should rejoice in the way that you made us. We are not accidentally made male or female but you by your providence, by your ordination, designated us in the way, the biology in which we have been made and for the purposes you have called us to. Not just in the world in which we live, but most especially as we read here in 1 Timothy 2, roles that you have called us to in the church. So may we desire to know what it is that you have appointed us for, In the household of faith, for as we had read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, these things that we are reading that we may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 98 is very simply, what is prayer? And the answer that's given in the catechism is this, Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. There's very simply the definition of prayer. Now in the shorter Catechism Explained, which is also referred to as Fisher's Catechism, After question 98, there are an additional 84 questions just on the subject of prayer. I've written down all 84 questions for you this morning. (laughs) Just just kidding. I'm going to cover the first seven, but I think will unfold for us a little more an understanding of prayer. As we have seen this instruction that Paul gave at the start of chapter 2, and we see it repeated again this morning, specifically toward men in the church. So question number one, following that question 98, are we to pray to God only? Answer, God only being to be believed in and worshiped with religious worship prayer, which is a special part thereof, is to be made by all to him alone and to none other. And we had considered that last week with the understanding that there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Question two, why is prayer to be made by all to God alone and to none other? Answer, because God only is able to search the hearts, hear the requests, pardon the sins, and fulfill the desires of all. Question three, may we not direct our prayers to any of the persons of the adorable Trinity? Answer, to be sure, we may. For the three-one God, being the sole object of religious worship, whichever of the three persons we address, the other two are understood as included. So you can pray to Father, Son... Or Holy Spirit. Question number four Why may we not pray to angels, to saints, or to the departed? Answer Because it would be gross idolatry. They being but mere creatures, nor can they supply the wants nor remove the miseries which sin has brought upon us. Question five. Do we pray to God to inform him of what he knew not before? Answer, not at all. For from eternity, he knew all the thoughts that should ever pass through our minds in time. Question number six. Do we pray to him that we may offer or or we may alter his mind or incline him to anything which he was formerly unwilling to grant. Answer, no. For with him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James 1.17. But we pray to him that we may obtain what we know and believe he is willing to confer. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. 1 John 5.14 Lastly, question seven. What are the several parts of prayer mentioned in this answer? Answer, they are these three. Petition, confession, and thanksgiving. And that was the very instruction that we saw at the start of chapter 2 last week. After Paul had opened this letter telling Timothy, don't let anyone teach any different doctrine, but continue in the sound words of the faith that you first heard in the gospel that was proclaimed. Once that order of business is taken care of, we're making sure that the doctrine in our church is sound. Then Paul gives instructions to the members of the church And the first instruction that is given in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then I urge that the people pray. And we heard it said this way, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And after that imperative, that exhortation is given to the whole church, we break it down now to specifically men that are given instruction and then followed by women. As you consider our outline for the passage this morning, as we come back to verses 8 through 15, we see, first of all, an instruction for men to pray. That's in verse 8. Secondly, you have an instruction for women to be modest. And that is in verses 9 and 10. And then next, 11 to the end of the chapter, pardon the bluntness for point 3, but we have an instruction for women to be quiet. And I will explain that further so we don't just end with that bluntness there, but that is nonetheless the summary of the instruction that we have there in verses 11 to 15. So once again, summarizing an instruction for men to pray, An instruction for women to be modest, but then an instruction for women to be quiet. And in fact, there is an instruction here for both the men and the women to be quiet. It is stated uh, in a way toward men that is more subtle, but then more directly to the women. And we'll consider why Paul features it that way as we come into these instructions specifically. But let's come back to instruction one. So what we have here in verse 8, Paul's statement, his exhortation, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, first of all, he has I desire. Paul is speaking with the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He stated his authority of apostleship from the very beginning. We even had a statement of uh, of contrast between him and those false teachers they spread lies and he said of himself i tell the truth i am not lying so this being one who stands in the presence of Christ Jesus who has been appointed by Christ to go and preach the gospel to give exhortation to the churches whatever word would come from the mouth of an apostle would be every bit as authoritative as the word of Christ himself So when Paul makes this expression here of I desire, it is not simply Paul speaking of his own fleshly expectations of what he would like a church to look like. And that's, I think, the way that we all express ourselves. I I want a church that looks like this. Some of those things very good if they're grounded in Scripture. Other things... Uh, just can be opinions, you can take them or leave them. Others, probably very bad if they oppose what the Scripture says. But Paul is speaking here under the authority uh, uh, of of apostle. It's not just simply the desire, he's not daydreaming about what he wants a church to be, but he speaks what Christ intends his church to be. And so saying, I desire then that in every place... The men should pray. Now, that statement in every place is kind of curious. You might think that Paul's instruction would be that men should go everywhere and pray. And that's most often the way that I've heard this verse interpreted. Men need to be willing to pray everywhere. And I would say that's not too far from uh, the case. That's certainly wise for men to be able to do that. In my role as a pastor, I've prayed in all kinds of places. I've prayed in, at the beginning of town council meetings I had the opportunity to go to the governor's mansion in Kansas and play piano at a dinner that he had, and he asked me to begin the proceedings with prayer. I have had the opportunity to pray even in public schools, believe it or not. They've invited me to come in and pray. So we should be willing to pray anywhere, but that's not really the directive that Paul is giving here. When he says... I desire then in every place that the men should pray. What he's actually saying is that this is an instruction that he gives to every church. It's not an instruction that's limited to Timothy and to the church that he's pastoring in Ephesus. But the statement of in every place is these instructions that I'm giving to you here are applicable for every church. And so even through the Holy Spirit to this very day in this very place, we are reading an instruction that the Spirit of God even desires for Providence Reformed Baptist Church in Casa Grande, Arizona. This order that has been given, this exhortation at the start of chapter 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people is now narrowed down and directed to the men to lead that example. I desire then in every place, in every church, wherever it might happen to be, it doesn't matter whether it is in an area of the world that is of the Roman Empire or an area of the world that would be considered the barbarians. We think of barbarians as being like a a Roman-era caveman, but that wasn't what a barbarian was. A barbarian was just simply someone who did not speak the Koine Greek language. And so the barbarians, if it would be the barbarians, even if it's a church there, if it's a church in Africa, if it's a church in North America, wherever this church is located, in every place, the exhortation is given first to the men to lead in prayer in the church. The men should pray And then Paul says, lifting holy hands without what? Without anger or quarreling. Because what are men more apt to do with their hands? They want to fight. They want to be pugilistic. They want entanglements. And this was surely the case with most men, even in Ephesus at this particular time. You'd go into a public square, you might see men fighting. And even when it came to rhetoric and it came to debates, you might have a debate that would begin with words at some point, but then it would eventually devolve into fisticuffs, <laughs> and fighting with one another, and your throat around or your hands around the throat of somebody that you were previously just trying to have a mutual engagement with. As we're in the Christmas season, you're probably familiar with the legend of St. Nicholas, that man whose name would eventually be morphed into Santa Claus and then all the other mythology that has been wrapped up in that as well. But Nicholas of Myra was originally at that first council at Nicaea in 325. And there was a man named Arius, as you probably know the story, who declared that Jesus Christ was actually created by the Father. He was not eternal with the Father. And Arius came down to the floor there at the Council of Nicaea, and he he sang this blasphemous hymn about Jesus being created by God. Well, it was Nicholas of Myra who was the first down to the floor to smack Arius in the face for the blasphemous hymn that he sang. That's not necessarily the reaction that Paul would expect. It's a fun story. I laugh about it every single Christmas. But that's not the way that we should be engaging in our disagreements. Paul is saying here that the natural tendency for a man is to want to fight and quarrel. But a man should rather be against his fleshly inclinations and filled with the Spirit should have hands that don't fight, Don't quarrel, don't engage in violence in any kind, but instead that a man's hands would be holy, hence why it is said of him that he would lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. I don't have to discipline the girls in my family against punching each other as much as I have to discipline my sons. It seems to be the natural inclination in men to want to engage in fights. And in fact, Paul gave this instruction to Timothy in the next letter. In 2 Timothy 2.22, he says this, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, oftentimes that verse, flee youthful passion, sometimes it's even translated flee youthful lusts, which is appropriate. That Greek word can be translated either way. A lot of times that verse is used to say that a man needs to control his thoughts, Don't look at a woman lustfully because it's a natural tendency or inclination in men to even, you know, go toward lustful things more so than women. That's actually not the context. That's not the instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy there in 2 Timothy 2.22. In fact, when you look at it in context, you understand flee youthful youthful passions means don't give in to that young man's desire to want to fight, to want to argue and bicker. And throw fists with those that you disagree. Instead, flee those passions, Paul says, and pursue righteousness. Holiness, what we see here in the first letter. Righteousness in the next. Faith, love, and peace. And Paul says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the expectation is not given upon you to have to simply control yourself and your own desires, although that call is given, but that there would even be accountability around you, people that would help you to remain peaceful instead of be a person who has a tendency to argue and fight. In fact, the very next verse there in 2 Timothy 2.23 goes on to say, avoid foolish, ignorant controversies because you know that they breed quarrels. So you see the context there, a desire that we would be agreeable with one another and the men need to set this standard in the church to pray, to lift up holy hands and not be one that has a tendency to get angry or quarrel. Lost my temper the other morning, in fact and had to apologize to my wife later. I, my temper was not lost at her. I was not fighting with her or yelling at her, but I was just short in my patience. And I stormed out of the room. wasn't at her. It was other circumstances. But still, that kind of behavior is not the kind of behavior that I should be exhibiting for my wife or for my children. So once I got my head about myself and realized how childish I was acting, youthful passions went back to my wife and apologized and said, that's not the way that I should be acting. And I'm sorry, and she is a godly woman, and she forgave me. So this is the kind of standard and example that men should be setting for the church to lift up holy hands and pray. Now, what kind of prayer should men be modeling, should be lifting up in the church? We talked about prayer last week, but we mostly talked about or we mostly considered the why And we didn't consider so much the what. Why should we pray? For Paul gives uh, uh, this this reason. He says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and, and dignified in every way. So we considered the why last week, but not so much the what. So what should we be praying for? Once again, you look back at the kinds of prayers that Paul says to lift up that we would make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So we would confess our own sins before God, we would ask of God, we would intercede, praying on behalf of another, and we would lift up praise. For as we read in the catechism just a moment ago, the different kinds of prayers that we would lift up include intercessions, confessions, and even thanksgivings, that we would give praise unto God. Now the first Directive of prayer, like the first way to direct our prayers, Paul says, is to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, notice that right before that, when he says the kinds of prayers that we should be praying, he says, Thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So you might take it as a given that we should pray for those who are in high positions. Praying for those who hold positions of authority within our government, for example. Do you even know who your mayor is in Casa Grande? Do you know who the governor is of Arizona? Do you know who your elected representatives and senators are that you may pray for them, like on the state level and then on the federal level? Of course, you know who the president of the United States is, who the vice president is. Do you pray for them? Now, let me ask you this question. You might be convicted enough already. I've not prayed, I don't pray for them at all. I would rather not think of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Maybe that's what pops into your head. So let me convict you further. Are you thankful for them? I don't know if you remember back to the summer of 2020. It would be hard to forget. But do you remember the kind of chaos? that our nation was falling into with all the riots that were happening in the country during that particular summer, that's but a taste of what our entire country would be like without governing authorities. It would just be anarchy and chaos. And everybody would react and respond to whatever news is going on at the time, whether there's a reason to be angry at those things or not, but they would just respond to whatever is happening in the news with anger and violence and invade streets and loot stores and invade neighborhoods with fights and destruction and chaos. That's what would happen without our governing authorities. So you may disagree with all of the politics of whoever it is that is sitting in the highest office in the land And my friends, I've had disagreements with every one of them. It doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. But are you nonetheless thankful for them? Do you consider the time in which Paul is writing this to his servant Timothy? The man who was in charge of the Roman Empire at that time was far wicked than any president than you have seen in your lifetime. More wicked than any of them. Nero. Nero who, though it hadn't yet happened at this time, would eventually put Christians on poles and light them on fire to light the streets of Rome. That's how wicked Nero was. And yet it's during the time of Nero that Paul is saying to Timothy, pray for kings and those who are in high positions with thanksgiving. That Peter would even say in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are to honor the emperor. Peter's talking about Nero, the very emperor who would order that both Paul and Peter were to be executed. And yet you have these apostles telling the church that even these men have been appointed to their positions by God and there needs to be a degree of thanksgiving for them, even by the Christian. And Paul's saying that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. The basis for these instructions that we're reading here in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, uh, the basis of this, of course, is upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of what Christ did for us that we should live this way. These are not just simple instructions that Paul gives to the church because, you know, you guys have to have morality of some kind. So here's the instructions that I'm going to give you. This is all on the basis of the fact that Christ came to earth. And we remember this at Christmas time, the incarnation of the Son. And he came quietly in a little town in Bethlehem, very unassuming, not seated in the palace or a, a descendant of whoever was enthroned in power at that time. He's born amongst animals and laid in an animal's feed trough. He grows up and lives a quiet life. How quiet was the life that Jesus grew up and lived? So quiet, we don't even know what happened. From age 12 to 30, there's nothing written about his life. And yet, even when during his ministry from age 30 to 33... He was being persecuted by the chief priests and Pharisees and even eventually put to death by the Romans. It was prophesied about him in Isaiah that he would not even utter a word of protest from his mouth like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And Peter would go on to tell us that we should live a peaceful and quiet life just as Jesus did not raise his voice to those who persecuted him so we would follow that very same example. And these instructions that Paul gives here, whether we're reading to the men or to the women, there's a call to quietness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, to 12, I kind of uh, alluded to this verse last week, but let me read it for you this week. Aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. We see a constant instruction throughout the epistles toward the churches to lead a godly and peaceful life. That we would not be the kinds of people that go out there and make all kinds of ruckus and and cause trouble. Now, that's not to say that there won't be trouble or there won't be some sort of pushback or persecution that comes from the people that are around us in the, in the secular culture and otherwise, of course they're going to hate the message that we preach because they hate God. Jesus said, remember, when they hate you, they hated me first. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, they're going to malign you just because you won't join them in the flood of debauchery that they're in. They're going to hate you just because you won't get drunk with them, that you won't share in the same lusts that they have. The world will hate you just because you want to pursue godliness. And Paul will say that later on with Timothy as well. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we know that those kinds of things are going to come against us simply because we desire godliness. But that doesn't mean that we go out there looking for trouble. We should speak up on behalf of those who are being persecuted and oppressed. Like take, for example, the fact that there are still thousands of babies dying every single day in this country by abortion. Why would we stand before governors and kings and so on and plead on behalf of the unborn? Well, because the scripture tells us to. In Proverbs 31, speak up for the mute, for those who are destitute, and judge righteously, we're told there. So we should do those things. The world is going to hate us for that. But we don't go looking for trouble. We're not trying to stir things up. We're not trying to be a nuisance. Those things are going to find us anyway, just because we desire godliness and holiness. Going back to 2020 again, when the order was given by the governor in the state of Kansas, that churches basically had to be shut down. She said they could still gather, but in groups of no more than 10. I talked to my elders of the church first, those men that we that I was ministering with in the caring of the souls of the people in my church. All this going on because of COVID, by the way. I it just kind of took that you knew what I was referring to. But I talked with the elders first and I said to them, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not closing the church. Period. We're not closing the doors. We're not going to limit it. I'm not going to tell anybody that they can't come here. I can get to church on Sunday morning, the doors are going to be unlocked. Whoever wants to come can come. We're not going to say that you have to come, nothing of that nature. We're going to leave it upon each person to decide on their own. But the church doors are going to remain open. And the elders considered that that was good, and they were with me on that 100% of the way. We were never in compliance with the governor's order. We always had more than 10 that were in church. But I didn't make a public case out of it we did what we ordinarily do every single Sunday. We gathered together for worship. There was another pastor in town who complied with the governor's order for a few weeks, but then he had enough of it. And he decided he was going to make a public case out of it. He started an online website. He got on social media and he said, I'm defying the governor's order and here's what it is that we're doing. Got himself in quite a bit of hot water. He was in the statewide newspapers. His... Defiance of the governor's order even made it all the way to the Telegram, which is a UK newspaper. So now it was international news that a church that was just five blocks down from ours was now making this defiant thing against the governor and was saying, No, we're gonna have church, we're gonna gather on Easter Sunday and we're gonna we're gonna pack the pews. Well, because it was international news, the sheriff in our community said, Well, if he does it, he's gonna get arrested. There were police in the church that morning ready to arrest people who came in uh, if if the number exceeded more than 10. There were more police officers there than there were people who came to church that morning. They never actually exceeded the number. So the pastor was just kind of drumming up a whole bunch of controversy, but the people didn't ever actually show up for church that particular morning. All of that was going on with policemen even ready to arrest people. While we were five blocks down, still meeting like we regularly did every single Sunday, and nobody was, was even aware that that was happening, except for people in our church. And there were some in the community that came too because all the rest of the churches were shut down. They wanted to worship God. They wanted to worship with the saints. So they went to the church where we had decided that we were going to fear God and not man. But we did all of that quietly. It wasn't done in an effort to try to gain a whole bunch of attention toward us. Look at us. Look at what we're doing. Here we are standing in defiance. We're going to go downtown and march. We didn't do anything like that. We did the ordinary, obedient things that we regularly did every single week. And that is what God is calling the men and women to hear even in this passage that you would do the expectant things, the ordinary things, the holiness things. Those things that God has instructed us to do, we would do it without fanfare. We're not trying to call attention to ourselves. You consider the passage that was read this morning, instructions regarding prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Don't be like the hypocrites who go out to the street corners and call all kinds of attention to themselves. Jesus said, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. That's a scary phrase. If what you wanted was the attention of others, you got it, and that's all you're gonna get. But our desire is to please our Savior. He who gave himself for us, who died on the cross for our sins, and rose again for our justification, so that all who have faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And we have eternal life with God. And my friends, when we gather together with him around the throne, all kinds of noise is going to be made. But for now, may it be our ambition to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then an instruction from there. This this is just the men we've been talking about here. From there, we have an instruction that is given to the women that they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now you'll notice that both of these instructions here are with regards to pursuing holiness. We have that the men should lift holy hands. And the women should profess godliness. So both of these instructions coming to the same thing. Men and women. These are instructions for men and women professing godliness. Which should be our desire that we would grow all the more in likeness. Godliness, the definition of that word is just very simply being like God. Holiness, the same way. Holiness is a set-apartness. So as you see the instruction that has been given to men to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling, I said there's kind of that natural tendency among men to want to fight and quarrel and bicker with one another and, and so on and so forth. We, uh, we see that among men, and you see that in our culture that that is a natural tendency among men. It's a natural tendency for men to want to fight. It's a natural tendency for women to want to be loud and draw attention to themselves by what they wear and how they present themselves. If you don't believe me, go on Instagram. I don't, uh, I, I don't encourage you to go very far, <laughs> but it doesn't take very long before you're surfing some of these social media sites and you'll see how much women will present their bodies to gain a lot of attraction from those people who are surfing on these social media sites. So Paul tells women that in their pursuit of godliness to want to be Christ-like, their holiness to be set apart from the rest of the world is going to look like this. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Now this is a passage that often gets used to tell women to put some clothes on. In our modern context, that, that is the way this passage will get applied because you see so many women that are, uh, are taking off their clothes to gain a lot of attra- attention, to get eyes upon their bodies, to get noticed because of their looks. Just this morning, I came across a calendar while I was on social media. Fortunately, somebody had blanked out the beginning, uh, the, the front of the calendar, so I didn't have to see anything else beyond the headline. But there is a calendar that's being promoted right now, to conservative dads, that is a swimsuit calendar of conservative women. Conservative. Seems to me like the only thing they're conserving with that is pornography. But nothing is being conserved in the sense of value. Suddenly, what what the conservatives were supposed to look like apart from the liberals we now look like the liberals you know what i mean like it used to be the people on the left or the liberals who were indulging in pornography and the hypersexualization of our culture and the conservatives at some point were standing on the rampart saying no we should not be doing this This is rather something that is intended for a husband and a wife in marriage and let's not sexualize ourselves and present ourselves as objects to be lusted over before the rest of the world. Now the conservatives are doing it and there's nothing conservative about that. It is wickedness that is parading itself, seeking attention, seeking eyes. Look at me, worship me, desire me. And yet, Paul's instruction for women here is to adorn themselves. So like I said, this passage will get used and applied to the way that women will present themselves immodestly in our culture today. And the pushback that you will hear on that is that women will say, no, that's, that's not what this passage is about at all. Because you see that Paul says that the women were wearing braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. So really, they're wearing too much clothes When Paul is telling them to be modest, so it's improper for us to take this passage and apply it to a woman who is not wearing enough. But you'll notice that the very beginning of the instruction in verse 9 is this. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves. So put clothes on. First of all, she should be covered. That's the first part of the instruction. But when she covers herself to do so in respectable apparel. Now, what do we mean by respectable? You're going to wear something that is worthy of being admired, not something that looks slutty or like a prostitute. But you're going to dress in a way that is respectable. It's worthy of being admired, something that is worthy of imitation. The older women in the church especially, you would want to be able to tell your girls dress like her. What she wears is respectable. It is modest. It displays self-control. Look at that next part. So it's respectable apparel. It's modest, meaning that it's not intended to flaunt the self, and it is exercising self-control. She is showing restraint. She is not trying to call all kinds of attention to herself, but rather... She is reserved. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. So what kind of description of this attire is this? It was women who were putting all kinds of valuable jewelry in their hair when they would braid up their hair. It was kind of the equivalent of makeup and things like that a lot of women will do today. I'm not saying anything opposed to makeup. Don't hear me saying that. But rather just overdoing it so that they could they could be seen with all these different baubles that they had in their hair and on their attire. And Paul says it's not the way that a woman should dress, especially when we're talking about the assembly of the saints. We're coming together to worship God. Your attention should be on God, not yourself. So instead, verse 10, women should wear what is proper. For those women who profess godliness, they should instead display good works. Now, Paul is not in any way saying here that women should not dress up to look beautiful. Don't see that that's the instruction. But rather, they're not to go overboard with it in such a way to call all kinds of attention to themselves. We're to be modest in our worship, and this goes for the men as well as for the women. We're not trying to call attention to ourselves, but rather direct focus to God. And where Paul says here... That a woman should instead adorn herself in what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your what? Good works. And give glory to whom? Your Father who is in heaven. So your good works don't call attention to yourself but that your good works would be a display of the good work that was done in your life by our Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. It is presenting ourselves in such a way that gives glory to God, not glory to ourselves. In the book of Proverbs, it says, The woman folly is loud and boisterous. That is a great description of feminism in our culture today. But that is not to be the way of a woman of God. As we're talking about holiness being set apart, she doesn't look like the world. She's not dressing like the world. She's not presenting herself like worldly women present themselves. But as a godly woman, knowing that she is Loved and adored by her creator, presents herself with modesty and self control in submission to Christ. So we have these two instructions that we've started with today an instruction to the men to pray, an instruction to the women to be modest. And then the third instruction, which we won't get to today, we'll save it to next week. But the third instruction is, women be quiet. (laughs) Now it's in verse 11 where it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And I titled the instruction that way because that word quiet comes up twice in verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And we'll expound upon that more next week. But notice something, ladies, so you don't feel like this is some sort of oppressive command that's being given to you. In verse 11, it says, Let a woman what? Learn. learn. That was huge at the time that Paul wrote this. Because where did the women sit in the synagogues? Outside. Outside. And here in the assembly of the saints, of the church that's gathered together to worship the Lord, guess what? Bring the women in and let a woman learn. Let her sit with the men and raise up her voice with the men to God who made man and woman in his image that we may worship God together and demonstrate as the saints, men and women, the goodness of God who has reconciled us to himself through his son, whether male or female. So there is nothing here in this instruction that would have been oppressive to a woman at this time. Rather, she would rejoice to hear, let a woman learn, but she doesn't hold the position of authority. Again, that is something that God has designated for the men. And why the instruction is first given to men in every place the men should pray to set the example of prayer for the saints in worship. So men and women, I think there has been enough that we have considered today to lay hold upon us and convict our hearts. The responsibility that you have as men and the responsibility that you have as women to even present yourselves physically in such a way that demonstrates a holiness and a reverence unto the Lord, let alone the spiritual attitude that we should all have in our hearts, that Christ would be glorified. Next week, we'll get to that second part with the instructions that are given with regards to verses 11 to 15. And that will be in the context of of the instructions for overseers in the church in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the meantime, we pause on this particular passage of Scripture that we may partake in the Lord's table and we would remember through this ordinance the body that was broken for us and the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Remember once again it being said to us that Jesus raised no protest to these things, but he gave glory to his father. He did it all for the glory of the father. And so we likewise, when we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we do it to the glory of our God. Let us take some time, a moment of quietness to confess our hearts before the Lord. And while we do that, if the elders would come in preparation for serving the Lord's table.